Hi, and welcome to The Mean. I'm Ryan Huber, and joining me is Rob Joustra, co-author of How to Survive the Apocalypse, Zombies, Cylons, Faith and Politics at the End of the World. His co-author, Alyssa Wilkinson, is in New York City, and so she cannot be with us. But uh, thanks for joining us, Rob. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So you, um, you aren't a television critic per se, although you absorb a lot of this. <laughs> what do you do in your life, in your world, that led you to write about uh, apocalypse? I don't know. What the, what the, what the <laughs> Can you have multiple apocalypse? Uh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> once there's more than one, isn't exactly. it just kind of, you know? <laughs> exactly. So what, what brought you and Alyssa to this project? So, uh, so it brought Alyssa and I, I mean, Alyssa Ills is a film critic, right? She was chief film critic at Christianity Today. Um, now she's with Vox and she goes to all these film festivals and stuff. Uh, she and I actually used to edit Comet Magazine together, so we had a professional relationship. But she's definitely like a, like a media film critic geek. Um, I'm actually, um, so my, my doctorate's in international relations. I teach on uh, religion and international relations in particular. Uh, but as a as an academic discipline, as a conversation, when you're talking about global politics, you might be amazed. Maybe lately you wouldn't be how much the apocalypse comes up. Mm -hmm. um, uh, usually trying to forestall it, mm -hmm. um, but you know, nuclear weapons, climate mm -hmm. change. I mean, these are all. I mean, the, the the whole conversation is sort of riven by the anxieties of the end of the world. And so, what happened is, Alyssa and I, she was talking about TV, and I was talking about politics, and we were, and we realized we're like, wow, fundamentally, there is a lot of really sort of existential overlap between yep. our conversations. And that's sort of the ground, the fertile ground out of which the book came. Now, were, was there a moment where you're watching a TV show and you were thinking about it or you were reflecting on it the next day and you went, man, this has got, there's got to be a book about this. Yeah. Yeah, actually, I think, I, I actually think it was The Walking Dead, believe it or not. And the book actually began, the title of the book actually comes from my first introduction to international relations lecture that I think I wrote in like 2008 or something. Uh, and I was trying to help students understand, uh, you know, the sort of pre-theoretical sort of assumptions that we have about the world and why those assumptions really shift how we act politically. Uh, and The Walking Dead in the early seasons had these two characters, sort of Shane and, and, and Dale, I think were their mm -hmm. names, right? And they were these two polar characters, you know, uh, uh, Dale was this sort of Faulkner quoting sort of idealist utopian and Shane was this kind of like Thucydides sort of realist, you know, might makes right sort of character. Uh, and it just sort of encapsulated some of the tensions about how to think about our political and social life together. And I ended up using it as a narrative introduction into why our basic assumptions about who human beings are fundamentally shape the way we politically act. And it worked as a lecture. Um, and so I kind of went from there and, you know, grabbed a lot of other pop culture stuff because there's a lot of that going on. Why Cylons? So you, you, you talked about zombies and Dale and his self-righteousness and democracy and voting and then yeah. Shane with his sort of instrumentalism and let's just get stuff done and survive and we got to kill somebody. That's fine. But where, where, do, where, where does Battlestar come, come in for you? So, I, I mean, I love Battlestar Galactica, first off. I mean, I just thought it was a brilliant series. And the more I dug into it as we were researching for this book... Uh, particularly the Mormon background to the whole narrative. It, I didn't actually sort of realize that the first couple of episodes I was watching until I started reading into it, and then it all just sort of clicked for me. I'm like, oh, of course, there's all this stuff going on in the background. But one of the fundamental questions, I think, at the heart of Battlestar Galactica is what does it mean to be human? 
Uh, and that really sort of, for me, sort of digs at the sort of Taylor, Charles Taylor asked questions about what is authenticity? What does it mean to be human? How do we sort of uncover that for ourselves? And what kind of background horizons do we do that against? Are there, is there a God or is there gods? Is there a plan? Is there no plan? Is it just, you know, as they say of history, one damn thing after another? Mm -hmm. um, and what does it mean to sort of act socially and politically in the midst of that? I thought Battlestar was a brilliant landscape that played that out. Um, and because of its deliberately religious heritage, and that kind of Mormon theology. I actually think it did a more sophisticated job than most of the, the, the shows or movies we talk about in this book. Great. So you, we'll touch upon several other television shows and, and probably Dante and a couple of other <laughs> things. Is, but, but there's a theoretical framework for this book. It's not just, I was watching TV and I thought, this is fun. Um, there's there, your reflections upon shifts in epistemology and identity and how uh, human beings relate to one another and themselves and their society and their culture, that sort of undergirds the first half of the book. Could you talk about how, how you came to articulate that, that particular setting, the setting of the book rather than the setting of the TV shows? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the TV shows, I mean, you got it right. I mean, the TV shows are examples. They're almost case studies in the book. But it's, it's, it's the framework that's doing most of the heavy lifting on the front end. Uh, and that's sort of arranged around this sort of concept of apocalypse. So you talk about apocalypse in the book, but apocalypse isn't just this sort of uh, monolithic term. You have different kinds of apocalypse and apocalyptic literature and neo-apocalyptic, but you also have this term dystopia from utopia, and that's different. So how, do, how, how are those things distinct? So, I mean, the, the organizing framework, uh, and in some ways the sort of research question of what we were talking about in the book was why has so much of our popular culture or television become so dominantly apocalyptic? And in the last, you know, decade especially, well, actually a decade and a half now since we've written it, uh, it's become very dystopian. Uh, and we were trying to identify both, you know, what's what the discontinuity is, you know, the dystopia, which we thought, okay, it's never, this has never been the dominant narrative, uh, but also uh, where the continuity was, because, you know, apocalyptic narratives are not new, and we actually go through that. We're like, you know what, basically, since since human beings have been around, we've The Epic of, of Gilgamesh, Exactly, right? right? You know, the Epic of Gilgamesh, you know, for every Garden of Eden, there's a revelation, mm -hmm. right? Uh, uh, for, you know, uh, uh, every sort of, you know, Asgard and Valhalla, there's Ragnarok, there's an end to it. And uh, that's the apocalypse. I mean, literally, I mean, the last, the last book of the Christian Bible, right, is entitled Revelation. Mm -hmm. Well, the Greek for that is, you'll know better than I would, um, is, is, is apocalypse, mm -hmm. right? They sort of share their, their bedfellows in that. And the whole idea is that uh, at the end of things, you have a final revelation of what the true nature of it was. Mm -hmm. Right. So we've been through all of this pain and this difficulty, but also this joy and also this, you know, you know, uh, uh, beauty. What has been the meaning of all of this stuff all along? And so, you know, the book of Revelation fundamentally is about sort of pulling back that curtain, especially for the early Christians and helping make sense, mm -hmm. if you will, of their place in history and why it had meaning and where they were going. So it was a revelation. When we think of apocalypse, we just think of. You know, I don't know, you know, um, you know Fire Bruce, brimstone. Yeah, Bruce Willis trying to blow up an asteroid mm -hmm. headed for the planet. Right. Mm -hmm. Um. Is there any meaning to that? Who knows? You know, these great cosmic bodies are hurling around. Eventually, the human the human race may go extinct, and mm -hmm. maybe there's not much meaning to that. It's not, but it's not just about the end. It's about what the end tells us. Mm -hmm. It's a revelation. And uh, if you read, for example, the Christian book of Revelation, that is, I mean, fundamentally, that is a revelation of hope, right? It's telling us things have been difficult and painful, and these destructions and trials are coming, but... In the end, all things will be made new. In the end, 
Christ is king. And even now he is king, but you will see it in its fullness and its coming. Uh, and that's, I mean, it doesn't get much more utopian in a sense than that. That's as good as it gets, you know. But not uh, dystopia. Dystopia but, doesn't have that hope. But dystopia it. doesn't have that. I mean, basically, you know, what we were finding is that we were sort of gaming out these sort of end-of-the-world scenarios, and we were trying in these end-of-the-world scenarios to discover what's the meaning of the whole thing then. And the dystopian element of that is we either can't really know what the meaning was, or the meaning is something sort of dark and terrible and ominous. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and that we thought, okay, well, that, that's quite different, actually, because the, the apocalyptic narratives of the Norse, you know, the Epic of Gilgamesh or whatever, there, it wasn't just about destruction, it was also about hope, about what would come next. And some of these new apocalyptic stories, we call them neo-apocalypse in the book, but there's the, fundamentally they have this dystopian sort of chord mm -hmm. to them. No millennia at the end. Right? Yeah, yeah, there's exactly. No, there's it's, no thousand-year reign of anything. There's no thousand-year reign of anything. There's just it's, just it's just darkness and death and blackness. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, well, what, what, you know, what does this mean? What does this mean as a culture that we're asking these kinds of questions? Um, and what does it mean that uh, our popular culture has shifted in this dramatic direction? And that, that's what we're trying to sort of get at in the framework of the book. Mm -hmm. So is it, Charles Taylor talks about these, these three um, malaises, yeah. right? Yeah. So individuality, instrumentality, and the double bind. Yeah, double of, loss of freedom. Of freedom. Yeah. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit and how you recognized in some of this art, some of this cultural artifact, those three things? Yeah. So that's his, um, yeah, his malaises of modernity. Believe it or not, the, the original subtitle of the book, which literally got me like laughed out of an editorial reading, uh, was supposed to be a popular culture of the malaise of modernity. And yes. they're like, yeah, until you're Charles Taylor, you cannot use the malaise of modernity in the title of anything, you know, like no sale. Uh, so anyway, that's how we got to zombies, science, politics, <laughs> faith and politics at the end of the world. Um, but, I mean, fundamentally, it, what we found in Charles Taylor's The Secular Age, which also encapsulates some of his other works, like uh, The Ethics of Authenticity sources of and Sources of the Self. I mean, mm -hmm. I don't know how he gets away with this, but most of that book is sort of well, published. Well, people say yeah. Stanley Hallowas has published the same book 25 times, so there are those out there that, that sort of... Oh, oh, to find, you know, that niche, but, uh, you know, so, you know, he'd said some of these things before, but we found in that a really helpful diagnosis uh, for uh, uh, what were the kind of, you know, tensions at the heart of the modern moral order, which is the way that Taylor talks about it, right? Uh, and what I love about Taylor is, I mean, he names these, I mean, he calls them almost pathologies, right? These are pathologies that are endemic to yeah. the way the modern moral order is sort of uh, 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 created society and the individual and how we think about it. Uh, and, uh, you know, so there's no, in a way, there's no getting away from these tensions. They're paradox that are sort of, you know, paradoxes that situate us there. Um, but what I love about Taylor, of course, he, he names those things unapologetically, very frankly. I, I think that we do that in this book too, uh, but he doesn't say, you know, and that's that's what makes this age so much worse than all the other ages. That's why we're going to hell in a handbasket. He actually says, he's, he, he actually says in the book, you know what, the, these are deep, intractable, difficult problems. I, I, I don't want to minimize them, but... There is, you know, and while they may be unique to the modern moral order, other ages have had other kinds of intractable yep. sort of challenges. These are our challenges. It's um, not just kids these days. Exactly. Exactly. And that's, I mean, that's part of the genre of talking about some of this stuff, uh, particularly in the United States, by the way. I don't know if in Europe and Canada we're quite as... Uh, dour sometimes as American, especially American sort of Christians, conservative Christians can be. Um, I, you know, it's say, you know, uh, somebody like me who's a Calvinist, you know, I at least know, you know, uh, it is, it's very bad, but it's no worse than it used to be. <laughs> you know? It's sort of an eternal problem. Yeah, it used to be worse in different ways. Yes. 
Uh, uh, but now these are the kind of peculiarities that are bad. But I mean, Taylor says, you know, we can, uh, we can either sort of, you know, lose ourselves in the kind of, you know, dystopia of these problems. Well, I mean, I guess that's it, you know, soap up and wash our hands of it. Or we can realize that some of these pathologies can be better or worse, yeah. right? There's, we're always going to struggle with individualism and instrumentalization and the double loss of freedom in the modern moral order. Those are, those are problems that are going to stay with us with this kind of, you know, uh, uh, modern moral order that we have. But there's a way to realize the better aspects of those pathologies, and there's a way to actually go down some of the worst aspects of that. And the whole point of us writing the book was actually to say, uh, let's, let's, let's name these hurts and fears that we have, because they're real, mm. but let's not just stay there. Mm -hmm. Let's actually try to find a way to realize better alternatives while realizing we're still on the side of the eschaton. We're not going to solve these problems, but we may be able to mitigate them in the here and now, sort of with our social and political ethics. And that's the point of the thing. I so think. we hear about the, the bright side of individualism all the time. It's yeah. almost taken for granted in, in, the, in the broader culture. Yeah. Maybe in the church, we, yeah. 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 Right? we yeah. need communitarianism or something like it. Yeah. But what does Taylor say about the downside of individualism? Yeah, I mean, I, I think fundamentally... Uh, it's about the loss of a sense of identity, right? He says, he says that we're witnessing a kind of transition from a kind of embedded cosmic hierarchy, right? Where uh, uh, individuals were not sort of free to choose in the way that we think about it. And we think that's a good thing. And by the way, I mean, lest I end up as too much of a modernity knocker, I, I generally think it's a pretty good thing too. <laughs> it solved a lot of problems that the previous age had, but it also created some new problems, right? Um, so before where people had, you know, a sense of what they did and who they were and how they fit within this hierarchy, even if even the most oblique sense, right? Like I don't want to say that, you know, the rural French peasant knew exactly where they fit in this kind of hierarchy of a pyramid and how that related to the king. They had only the foggiest notion. It's not like everybody, you know, was reading Wikipedia about how- But if 502 French years ago, you asked that, that French peasant, yeah. are you religious? Yeah. What would they say? I mean, well, uh, that's an interesting problem with the use of the word religion. I, they may have understood that to mean a specific monastic order, right? Mm -hmm. um, and they would have said, well, you know, no, maybe, uh, you know. Because I think of way. Calvin's Institutes yeah. of Christian religion, but he, that no one's talking about should I be religious or should I not be religious, yes. right? In a broader sense, like what we mean. it. That's part of the big S Yes, secular age. That's I mean yes, and the bit the invention this sort of you know this invention of the big modern moral order, big S secular age, actually came alongside with the invention of religion as a kind of term that could be sort of conceptually discrete from other areas of life. But it's I agree with you. You know, sixteenth, fifteenth century rural France that is not a that's not an intelligible framework. That's a new shift. Mm -hmm. uh, and what happens to individuals to get back to the question is it leaves them sort of floating floating free. In the universe of meaning right now and you actually you know you, you can actually see how this connects with students i had um uh i had some students reading uh, actually jamie smith's little introductory book to taylor right I how not to be secular yeah and one of my students read it and i thought you know okay now we're gonna have an academic conversation about you know the invention of religion and modern moral order or whatever else and what she said the first thing she said is i finally understand why i feel so lonely because you know i'm 19 or 20 years old and I need to somehow uh, make for myself the meaning of the world and decide for myself how I will fit as a person into that meaning, what my gifts are, who I am, what my authentic contribution is, in no, a sense. Building the self is exhausting. It is. And it's, it's something that in some ways I don't think, you know, for the last two, three thousand years of human history, 
20-year-olds have had to do. Now, that's because they've been told who they're going to marry and what their vocation is going to be. I mean, they don't get to go, they didn't get to go to college and learn about all these different things. That make, so those are all good things, by the way. I don't mean to disparage that these choices are You don't want to wind the clock back and go to Exactly. Where, well, my dad made barrels, so yeah, exactly. make barrels. Exactly. Uh, but on the other hand, I also want to recognize that, you know what, there's, there's, there's a crisis. There's like an existential crisis in young people as a result of that because... You know, uh, we've they've we've both taken away the sort of cosmic framework, the sort of embeddedness that they had before, and then we've said, you know, to be authentic, to be true to yourself, you need to understand who you you is, right? Who are you, and how are you going to express that? And at the same time, especially in I think broader secular culture, we've also said, and by the way, don't depend on anybody who's come before, right? Don't trust, don't trust your parents, don't trust your grandparents. Certainly don't trust people like Augustine, right? You know, oh, that's way too back. You know, most of it is sort of racist and homophobic. You know, leave it, you know, leave it alone. Don't trust institutions. You've got to decide for yourself mm -hmm. as a sort of, you know, but actually one of the things I think Battlestar Galactica perfectly illustrates is the fallacy of that. Because that's what the Cylons try to do, right? They're constantly trying to become uh, fully authentic individuals, but they can't get away from their parents who are humans in the midst of that. Even Cranky Cavill is one of these silencers says, oh, just destroy the humans, they're inferior to us, or whatever else. Somehow he needs the humans to validate the choices that he's made for them to be fully authentic. And that's, that's us, right? right? We don't want to listen to our parents, and yet somehow we actually need our parents to approve of what we're doing, right? But we've got to leave them behind while we're doing that. I mean, the tension of that is just unimaginable. And this student, I think, captured it beautifully for me in my class where he said, this is why I feel so lonely. So that's individualism. What about instrumentalism? Yeah, I mean, uh, as a man who studies ethics, uh, you know, thingification, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and we get into that uh, a little bit when we're talking about stuff like Game of Thrones and things like the slide to subjectivism and so on and so forth. I mean, if the lodestar becomes the individual, then things are significant insofar as they actualize myself, right? Which, by the way, I, I can't imagine um, a worse formula for something like marriage than walking in with that understanding, right? Marriage, family, anything like that. I mean, it's... Well, if what, we're, what you're saying is true, then we would have seen sort of a degradation of marriage over the last few decades. <laughs> we, we would have seen that. I wonder if there are numbers on that kind of thing. I wonder if people are working on that. A number of people are working on that. So, I mean, yeah, some of that has some explanatory power for where we've where we've come from. And, and you hear that sometimes in the language that people use around divorce and stuff like that. You know, uh, my needs weren't being met. I wasn't feeling fulfilled. Uh, I'm just not the same person anymore. Exactly. I hear that a lot, that, that there's this, because one is constantly called upon to build the self, yeah. that when you're 35, you're not the same person that you were when you were 22. Yeah. So what are, what are these vows that that other person made even mean anymore? How could you even make such a vow? I mean, and I've heard that talked about in terms of marriage. Like, the making of those kinds of vows is almost unintelligible to the kind of modern self. Uh, that's very far from, I mean, I remember, uh, you know, I haven't been married that long, but I remember when I was thinking about getting engaged, I used to go to a monastery a lot. I still visit it periodically. Uh, and they described, you know, marriage as, you know, this is your monastery. Here you will take up your cross and you will die to yourself. Wow. And I'm like, Boy, that's deeply anti-modern, you know? <laughs> I remember Tim Keller getting a lot of flack for his book, The Meaning of Marriage, because he was talking about the meaning of marriage isn't my own happiness, it's yeah. holiness, it's me becoming more of the person that God wants me to be, and people are like, well, why would anyone ever want to get married? And it's sort of what the disciples ask Jesus, right? Like, it's like, well, then who, who, why get married? You can't just divorce somebody whenever you want. Who wants that? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh but it, and it is, it's, it's, it's not, it's anti-modern, right? It's just not the sort of 
way that we're accustomed to thinking about fulfillment itself. And so, but when marriage and families become instrumental, and by the way, I mean, I actually, I teach political economy, so I don't mean to be down on economists because I think especially in the church, I mean, we just, you know, we can really get on uh, economists and, and, and markets and this kind of thing. Uh, but of course, I mean, I do think you see this kind of instrumentalization thing most radically in economics, uh, and especially in conversations about um, climate change. Um, so I, fascinating, I mean, I used to work in politics for a while, and so you'd work with members on the Hill and so on and so forth, in our, my case, members of parliament. Uh, but, uh, and, and to make an argument that was convincing, I mean, the most convincing argument on climate change seems to be uh, that uh, if we don't act uh, in order to mitigate some of the environmental destruction that human beings are causing, then the viability of our species is in question. Mm -hmm. It right? will be very inconvenient. It will be. It will be very. Well, it will be very inconvenient, right? Um, and that even that argument isn't super convincing because, for, because frankly, it's instrumental. But it's instrumental for like my great great grandkids. Mm -hmm. It's not really instrumental for me. But even that is the strongest argument in an instrumental culture. Not by the way, the fact that. Maybe human beings are creatures and we are here to be caretakers of this creation, right? That, I mean, that argument's right out. That's not an instrumental argument. That's a cosmic order embedded hierarchy thing again, right? That instrumentalization, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons fundamentally that we just have an impossible time getting our head around long-term non-instrumental risks like the environment. Um, one, we're always bad about thinking about long-term risks, and that's a social psychology problem. But two, we don't have a way of thinking about creation in a social and political, in a socially politically sort of widespread way that's more than just instrumental. Uh, and that is a big problem. I don't think you can actually make the choices we need to make without a different framework. So you've got individualism, you've got instrumentalism. The, probably the one of these I understand the least is the, the double loss of freedom. I, I get it, but it, it seems to be um, not underdeveloped in your book, but it, I think it's a little harder to get get your get your fangs into, so to speak. So if you could if you could try to help people who are like, well, what if we have more individualism? Why don't we have more? Like we have more freedom. <laughs> like we have to build ourselves, and we have all the freedom we need to do that. So how how have we lost? I'm so glad that's. Uh, see, this is for the for the ethicist. I think this probably would be the word for the political theorist. This is like the most exciting part of the thing. Uh, and uh, one of the reasons, I mean, that this double loss of freedom is a result of that. One of the examples we use um, is uh, the Hunger Games, mm -hmm. right? And by the way, I mean, you could talk about uh, the guy who talks about the double loss of freedom the best, probably Alexei de Tocqueville on Democracy in America, right? And this is this is his brilliant thing. He said, oh, this American experience is brilliant, but it can go down a really bad way this way, and it can go down a really bad way that way. Um, and on the one hand, he's got the kind of, um, you know, fragmentation of society, the hyper-individualism, there's nothing that really holds us together. Uh, uh, Yuval Levin has written a book about this, The Fractured Republic, right? On the other hand, you've got this sort of thicker Orwellian, well, then we need to really, you know, really sort of theologically, it's got to be Christendom, yeah. right? Well, if, we, if, we don't sure, if we're not sure what's holding people together there, well, we better make sure everybody's saying the Lord's Prayer over here, and then we're going to be okay, right? Alexei de Tocqueville is trying to find a path between those two things. Uh, and uh, I think The Hunger Games actually does a brilliant job. Uh, for students who are unfortunately not reading, say, uh, Huxley's Brave New World, which gives you the Fractured Republic, or Orwell's 1984, which gives you the sort of thicker civil religious thing. Or Handmaid's Tale, which everybody's talking about. Yes, which everybody's talking about, exactly. Uh, but Hunger Games is great because um, you have the twin double loss of freedom. You've got two dystopians happening in the Hunger Games, right? You've got District uh, 12, right, where 
you've got the obvious sort of uh, coercive power of a tyrannical government, sort of, you know, with their jackboot on the necks mm -hmm. of it. We all recognize that. It's like a Soviet gulag yeah. kind of situation. Yeah. Everybody sees, oh, that's bad. We shouldn't have that. But then I actually think the more prophetic thing that The Hunger Games talks about is the capital, right? Mm -hmm. This ludic celebration, everybody's sort of surgically augmenting themselves to be different. It's this full expression of authenticity, but then of course you've got this carnival at the center of it that's this like carnal, violent, gladiatorial thing that's just like outrageously immoral. Uh, and you know, this is Be the Be careful, capital. we're close to LA. <laughs> yeah, <I'm> sorry. <laughs> so they might hear you in yeah. Hollywood. <laughs> They're gonna come in here. Um, but, uh, you know, and that, and, and I mean, that gives the sense that there's nothing that holds the capital together, right? There's nothing that holds the capital together except the extraction of resources from the periphery to the core. Oh, I sounded vaguely Marx, vaguely Marxist, but um, uh, but the extraction of resources uh, to the core, and then obviously the sort of you know the grinding humiliation on the districts that enables that extraction, and their full expression of their identity. So that's these are these two social and political pathologies, if you will, that modernity. Steer, stands a real risk of running in either direction. And I actually think, you know, if you're reading people like Robert Putnam, you know, yeah. big social, social scientists and uh, social theorists today, uh, these are the challenges that mm -hmm. we see daily reenacted. You know, when we're having debates, particularly in Europe, uh, over the limits of pluralism, the meaning of multiculturalism, where does Islam fit in the midst of that, right? We, we are having a debate about Tocqueville's twin dystopias. Mm -hmm. Which one are we going to be? Yeah. People think, oh, if we're too pluralist, that's going to be the end of it. You know, it's just going to be this fractured republic, nothing left, little sort of psychographic clusters, no common project. But on the other hand, the thicker it gets, well, then we don't have room for people. Um, and that's, I mean, the, I, I don't mean to make light of that. I genuinely think those are difficult questions. Mm -hmm. We don't have a good moral vocabulary for discussing them, in my opinion, but they are genuine anxieties that are at the heart of the modern moral order. And so this produces these kind of epic, either dystopian or apocalyptic um, pieces of, of literature and now visual art, um, television, however you want to categorize that, multimedia. So you've got things like uh, Westeros and yeah. Song of Ice and Fire, and you've got Katniss Everdeen surviving on the margins of a yeah. uh, you know, post-apocalyptic world, and you've got even the, the zombie wasteland of, of Walking Dead. But you and Alyssa do something really interesting in this book, and you take it to the anti-hero. And the individuals mm -hmm. living in our current, it's not this world building thing, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's New York City mm -hmm. in 1961. Mm -hmm. So how did that, how did that turn happen for the both of you or for, or for you or for whoever is responsible for it, <laughs> to go from these huge, obviously dystopic, obviously apocalyptic pieces of art to these more kind of interior pieces? So, I mean, that was one of our favorite, there was an aha moment when we were like, oh, we're not actually just going to be talking about science fiction and fantasy. We're going to be talking about big blockbuster pop culture that quote unquote normal people watch. Although normal people watch Game mm -hmm. of Thrones now. I'm very gratified by that term, but because uh, I love this stuff too. Uh, but one of the reasons actually came around to how we organized our understanding of apocalypse and dystopia, right? If it's if it is the end of something significant and the revelation of what the new order is, then some of this stuff where we don't actually see like the literal sort of, you know, punitive destruction of the planet is also an apocalypse. One of my favorite examples in there is a chapter that elicited the first draft on is the movie Her. 
Uh, I don't know if you remember that. It's, uh, it's set in a like, it's set in the future, but it's like set in a like 10 years future, right? It's like, oh, I still recognize everything that's going on. People have smartphones, but they're better. Mm -hmm. AR, AI has just kind of sort of crested that thing that we've always been. Just Apple has really you know, taken yeah. it. Or the Chinese corporate <laughs> companies, you yeah. know, that are equivalent to Apple. There's, everything is these tones that the, yeah. the colors of her are really interesting, right? They're they like, are, yeah. I love it, the It's power. not Blade Runner. Yeah. No, it's not. No, it's not. It, and it's deeply recognizable. You know, and, uh, you know, there's very much a sense in which people are isolated and alone and there's this sense of fragmentation, uh, but it's this commentary on kind of like technology and the self and sort of, you know, the ethics of authenticity. And uh, at the end of the movie, of course, you know, spoiler alert, um, you know, uh, everything changes. There's this cataclysmic change in a sense, right? Buildings are not leveled. Nobody is killed, right? It's not a violent movie. <laughs> Uh, but there is, a, there is a sense in which an apocalypse has happened. The end of a world has happened. And that's why some of these dramas set in the 60s or even like 10 years in our future, they're about the end of a world. And they're about the revelations about who we are as human beings and who we are as a society that will pivot us into the next thing. What is the next sort of iteration? Is there a next iteration? So for Don Draper, it's obviously there's the black suit, black tie, post-World War II, white heterosexual man yeah. is in charge of everything. And then the first cultural revolution, yeah. you know, civil rights movement, everything of the 60s just comes in a tsunami and makes Don Draper or Dick Whitman, whatever you want to call him, makes him kind of obsolete. And so that, that, that jives, I, I, can, I can see that. Which world is ending in Breaking Bad for Walter White? Yeah, that's, I mean, so this is, uh, uh, Alyssa's the Breaking Bad aficionado, by the way. I'm not, uh, but I've seen a bit of it. She's like binged it. Uh, and loves it. I mean, this is this is about the end of one man's world, right? This is about a terminal diagnosis, and uh, and I, in some ways, it's it's akin to other sorts of movies that we don't talk about in here, but also like Batman and so on and others. But uh, where we're trying to discover uh, what are human beings really like, right? When you strip away our uh, you know suburban homes and our washing machines and you know everything else, and you give us a terminal diagnosis, which by the way is interesting because all of us have it. But we're not, uh, uh, which is in the sense we are all going to die. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> um, uh, 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 we, we all have this, but we never talk about death in our culture, right? I mean, that's one of the things the modern moral self can't talk about. Oh, there's no de Death is very hard to deal with uh, because there's a very real sense in which death runs us up against our finitude and it runs us up against the ultimate. And if we don't have a language for that, one, that's terrifying, but two, there's nothing to talk about. Right. So you sometimes get that, you know, from especially the real material scientists who are like, oh, yeah, you know, religious people are people who need, you know, meaning to come after their death. But I'm brave enough to face, you know, the nothingness that comes after that. Uh, and I think that's part of what's going on in something like Breaking Bad. There's a there's a terminal diagnosis. There's an end of a world. What are we really like in the end of that? What kind of ethics do we have? Uh, how do we act? How do we behave? What are other people to us? You know, that kind of thing. And that's and it, and in a sense, they're almost there's almost an argument for these are our truest selves, right? You strip away all that other stuff and this is who human beings are underneath. Walking Dead has that. Um, some of the Batman movies really have that. It's actually a good point. Where, uh, is it, it's the one with the Joker where Heath Ledger's the Joker. Uh, and there's these two ships passing each other. It's the prisoner's <laughs> dilemma, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and the Joker's trying to prove to the Batman these people are not worth your, they're not worth saving because I'm going to show you what they're really like. Mm -hmm. And that's fascinating. Of course, in that case, the Batman... 
uh, ends up being right. But at the end of the movie, the Joker is actually proved right yeah. because his whole point is to corrupt the most incorruptible character in the movie, which yeah. is Harvey Dent, the White Knight. I want to show you, I'm going to push this person to show you that every person can be corrupted and at their heart of hearts, once I take away the things they love, they will be no Job. But they will say, curse God. Have, have you considered yeah. my servant Job? That's, yeah, exactly. exactly. They will curse God and mm-hmm. die. They'll do what his wife tells them to do. Uh, and uh, that's the conclusion of Batman, that there are no jokes out there. It's pretty dystopian. <laughs> so one of your, your chapters is about institutions, and I think this is a really, I mean, without even getting into the election of Donald Trump as the president <laughs> of the United States of America, let's, let's, let's uh, rewind back to January of 2016, right? So just to uncomplicate things a bit, because we are in the end of a lot of people's worlds right now because of the election of Donald Trump. It was an apocalypse. Yeah. Yeah. But so the the sort of downward decline of trust in institutions, whether Mm. it's Congress, um, less so with the military, but still Mm. seeing some with the military, the media, the media Uh, seems to be almost completely bankrupt. In a free fall. Yeah. So, so how does your book deal with that? And what, what, what pieces of culture do you see that reflected in? The, the decline of institutions or the belief, the, the, the resurrection of belief in institutions. Yeah, I think this is, I actually think this is one of the chapters we talk about learning to love. Uh, yeah, it's the Hunger Games chapter, actually. May the odds be ever in your favor, learning to love faithful institutions. Uh, and uh, that's, I mean, that's a preface. And by the way, that, that title was actually stolen from an article by uh, Jonathan Chaplin, which was first published in the other journal and then in Comment Magazine. Uh, the subtitle of which was The Building Blocks of a Just Global Society. Okay. Uh, but the whole, I, I, I mean, the, the, the idea behind the recovery of institutions, and institutions is such a, you know, it's, oh, well, you know, it's such a sort of archaic word. Nobody does. It's just, I mean, an institution is really just, you know, a group of people that get together with a common purpose, with an articulated purpose and strategy. But what it is, is a grouping of people with a common vision. Uh, and the the sort of the decline of institutions, I mean, most sociologists and social scientists, I think, would say, is usually paired with the rise in individualism, right? Where, again, I, I, I relate to an, if I'm part of an institution, if I relate to it, I relate to it in a very instrumental way. Uh, church membership's actually a good example of this, uh, where people are like, well, I go to a church, uh, but am I, you know, what am I getting out of it? You know, I, what do I receive as a result of this, right? We're very far from, you know, the famous Kennedy asked, not what your state for, can do for you, but what you can do for your state. We're very far from that kind of language, right? Um, uh, and, and I mean, that, that, that decline, especially the, the in individual instrumentalization of institutions becomes, uh, you know, what can these things do for me or how much they reflect me? And by the way, in the context of the American election, I mean, I think one of the most worrying things um, I mean, I gave my wife a hard time about this, but I waited until after the election because she was in a soft spot, um, is where a lot of people said, uh, or well, not a lot of people said, some people, you saw some commentary that said, uh, you know, he's not my president, right? He doesn't reflect anything that I believe. Um, I won't participate in this. I don't recognize him as a president. Uh, I mean, that is an interesting problem, right? Because democracies are fundamentally predicated on the fact that you participate vigorously, ideally, you vigorously participate and debate with your co-citizens, eventually reach a conclusion through the the form of some kind of vote, and that will ultimately produce a result that may not actually reflect your beliefs, but the process itself sort of led you there. So in a sense, you know, he is, you know, my wife's president, not mine, by the way, I'm Canadian, but um, (laughs) But he is. I I didn't vote for him, I didn't want him to be my president, but he is my president. Like, whether I like it or not, there is still some... 
there is still is some sort of um, centrifugal yeah. kind of pulling pulling the individual into the society whether I like it or not right because I could say well that law against burning my neighbor's house to the ground isn't my law yeah it's like well you can say it's not your law subjectively but objectively that's still the case and if Donald Trump starts a nuclear war yeah I'll have to deal with that whether he's my president or not. So will I, even though he's not my president. <laughs> so, exactly. he's, he's literally not your president. Yeah, he's literally not mine. But I will definitely deal with the no pun intended fallout. Uh, I mean, that's I mean that's part of the interesting political problem of how how uh, sort of individualists and a sort of individualist society approaches states because states have a monopoly on coercive power. It's one of the things that defines them. And, you know, I don't really care if you don't like Donald Trump as president or not. You're, I mean, it's about that time. You're filing your taxes and paying them, mm -hmm. right? Uh, now, that's an interesting problem, uh, which all across the political spectrum people have come along with because they find different policies of the government immoral or wrong. Um, and, I mean, that's everything from, uh, you know, health care up to foreign wars, right? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, what does a pacifist do? Does a pacifist pay taxes? Well, in the United States, a pacifist is paying for taxes, paying for an enormous amount of military expenditure. They should come up their pay for much less. But I mean, uh, <laughs> our armed forces are uh, uh, a very well-equipped and earnest bunch, but they are not quite at the scale. Uh, I was going to say about institutions, them. when you described uh, people coming together for a common purpose, yeah. I'm an ethicist, but I have a historian brain. Yeah. My dissertation is 5-6 history, actually. It's really digging into what happened. Mm. And so I, I tend to think of things asynchronously, mm. right? Like, not just what's happening now, yeah. but what has been happening, the continuity yeah. piece. And which is why I enjoyed the, the beginning of your book where you kind of tell the story, right? Yeah. You tell sort of how we got to this understanding of apocalypse or why it's a thing. Well, for me, institution, institution, institutions, a big part of, of the definition of an institution is the promulgation of history, right? Yeah. It's the continuing on of some kind of tradition. Yeah. Even if an institution changes over time, there's a stream. There's a, we we are here in the same room at the same time, but yeah. someone 50 years ago was sitting in this room that did something that probably enabled us to be in this room at this time. So, yeah. so there's a sense that in the, the for me, the decline of institutions, I don't know what the causation is, mm -hmm. but once again, just like with individualism, there's a correlation between the the sort of breakdown of institutions and the breakdown of the feeling that it's important to come from somewhere or yeah. to be part of a story that preceded you. I mean, and in some ways, the sort of these ethics of authenticity, individualism, specifically attacks that notion in which it's important to pay respect to where you came from and why that's important. I think as McIntyre says in uh, After Virtue, he actually says we are all part of uh, we're all part of a drama that's not our own making. We are at best the half authors of our own stories. I really like that. I mean, it also fits with some of the discoveries in social psychology that. A lot of the ways that I relate to things and what I believe, like some of that is what I came up with, but a lot of you it didn't is choose. I, I I didn't actually. That's that's one of moral psychology is starting to come to that conclusion that you know I was always predisposed in certain kinds of directions because of my upbringing. Uh, Charles Taylor calls that problem uh, in terms of that lack of recognition. He actually it's, it's an improbably dense term, but he calls it a time purged consciousness. I uh, and I actually think he's right about that. Uh, and that, and especially if you have an instrumental relationship to the past, we start to wonder why, for example, I mean, in the United States, people take certain kinds of historic documents very seriously, for example, the Constitution. But we start to wonder, 
why did all these white dudes who put together a piece of paper, you know, back at the end of the 18th century, why should they have more authority than what we believe today? Why should that document bind us in any kind of meaningful way? I mean, they were all sort of racists and homophobes and everything else, you know, back in the 18th century. It's, it's unclear. Why should that have a kind of constitutional coercive power on the part of the state? Contra G.K. Chesterton. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, the, the tyranny of those who uh, happen to be walking about at the time, yeah. right? So that, yeah. that's, that's presentism. And, yeah. and we do that. That's our language. Yeah. Is it's a majoritarian presentism, yeah. right? Which actually is a kind of tyranny yeah. uh, in some ways, which is part of the double loss of freedom. I think that's part of it, and I think you're right. I love the historical uh, angle. So uh, to, to put feet on the ground here, what do you hope that this book does for someone who's reading it? Or another way of stating that is if someone really does engage with these television shows, with mm. this popular culture, and they start to think of some of these deeper ideas or they, they encounter them in your book, mm. what do you hope happens? Yeah. I mean, in, in some ways, it's a book about, um, in some ways, it's a book about discipleship in modern society, right? Uh, how, to be, uh, how to be and to live as a Christian. It's very deliberately written toward Christians. Although, by the way, I've had plenty of friends who are Baha'is and Muslims and so forth who read it who said, oh, this really resonated with me. There's a lot there. Because they're traditions. Yeah, not just Christian. It's not, yeah. I mean, the last sort of chapter-ish is pretty Christian um, and certainly some of the beginning stuff. But uh, just a religious perspective has a lot of affinity with some of this stuff because religion generally has a different perspective on time and so on and so forth. So, I mean, the fundamental thing that I hope people take away uh, or can take away from this is a more, uh, a more thoughtful way uh, to engage and to participate uh, in the structures of modern moral order. Not, not as naive idealists, not as, well, you know, America's great, 21st century America is amazing and there are no problems. I want them to stare unblinkingly at these pathologies that exist. They are real, they are pernicious, they are incredibly damaging in the way they dehumanize, you know, each other and so on and so forth. But I don't want us to end there with that kind of dystopian malaise. I want people to sort of, you know, pick up this book and say there are real opportunities to actually shoulder to the wheel uh, uh, make real progress here. That's why we use Daniel as the metaphor at the end of the book. We talk about uh, uh, Daniel's service in Babylon, right? We're not, uh, this is not the literal kingdom of God. God brings the kingdom of God, right? Jesus returns. But this side of the eschaton, it is possible, even in the midst of the darkness and the difficulty that we see around us, to engage with our neighbors uh, and find common cause. That's the primary purpose. The secondary purpose, I hope, uh, and I think Alyssa's brilliant at this, is to make people more empathetic uh, engagers with popular culture, right? Because so much... Um, There's the Christian bubble, right? Exactly. Like, well, I, that's, that's secular. I don't want to... You know, I need to have my Christian music. Yeah. Bad. Yeah. <laughs> I need to have my Christian movies, which are routinely bad. Yeah. Um, and I need <laughs> exactly. to have my Christian t-shirts, which are yeah. awful. Yeah. And so so people are living in these bubbles. We've been talking since the Donald Trump's victory about sort of the liberal coastal elite bubble. Uh -huh, uh -huh. But I mean, you and I have been have been um, observers of our own particular, yeah. you know, Christian bubbles for years. So you're hoping to kind of burst that a little bit. I mean, I, what I want them to see is, okay, so all the shows that are being made here, right? Okay, so there's a Mormon theology behind Battlestar Galactica, but Walking Dead, Game of Thrones, Breaking Bad, so on and so forth. I think a lot of people, a lot of, a lot of Christians look at that, and first of all, they see the violence and the swearing, and they say, well, that's right out. That's not for me. But what I want Christians in particular, and religious people generally, to see is that our neighbors, our secular neighbors or whatever, are actually, they are painfully afflicted 
with the same with a very similar set of anxieties and hurts and fears as we are and they are writing in some cases beautiful yes dark terribly dark stories about these anxieties but this is actually somewhere where we should be meeting our neighbors i feel like in some ways these these pop culture shows they're an almost like cathartic small group meeting where people are sort of you know voicing their innermost fears and desires and i think for religious people and for christian people in particular to say well that small group's not for me because you know harold he swears too much and you know patrice she drinks too much i think that's wrong i think we need to be in that room and hearing very candidly the hurts of our society and i think these stories tell those hurts and i don't know how as christian people in particular we can be serious about healing wounds and bringing the gospel until we hear where people are at and how they're hurting and i actually think these stories are a big part of hearing that in a sense, it's almost like this this trans-religious or, or pluralistic, in, in, in the best sense, uh, equivalent of a Bible study, right? You're getting yeah. together around a text, and you're dissecting it and saying, what does this mean to me? Yeah. What does this mean to us? Yeah. And, and, and there you find some common ground, usually. Yeah. I think so. I mean, these are these are apocalypse in the best sense of the thing. We're debating revelation. We're debating the true meaning of the things. And for me... Christians should be in that room. Mm. We've got a lot to say, but we've also got a lot to hear. From the room neighbors. exists. We can either be in it or not be in it. Yeah. So the conversation is going to happen. So to kind of start to wrap this up a little bit, it takes a while to write a book. Yeah. Uh, what? How long was the process for you? Uh, I mean, we started throwing ideas and stuff at each other for about a year before we got serious. And then I think it took us probably about another year, a year and a half to like really write it and throw it back and forth. And it came out last year. Uh, yeah, it came out last spring. We launched it last spring in New York. So yeah. you're talking 2014, 2015, 2016. That's yeah. sort of the creative process. Yeah. What are some things that you've noticed since or some things that barely missed the cut yeah. that you may have put in? Like if you were writing this book today, yeah. is there anything that, that you would add? Well, I mean, I, I we'd probably change some of the shows. I mean, one of, one of the things that Alyssa and I debated uh, is, you know, which shows we would include and why, uh, which movies we would include and why. I mean... Uh, but we've, we've, she and I obviously have talked a lot since we published the book and reflected on how incredibly prescient in some ways it seems that we could write this book today with an entirely different set of mm -hmm. television shows and movies and sort of pop culture zeitgeist. And, you know, I don't think the fundamental insights will have changed. And that is, of course, because the fundamental insights are actually predicated on Taylor's diagnosis of a secular age, right? I don't think those change in three years. That's a, that's a decades, if not centuries working out of some of these difficulties. So... Uh, especially as we moved into uh, the president, American presidential election cycle, the primaries and so forth, Alyssa was almost emailing me like every other day saying, uh, this book is so much more important than I thought it was. Mm -hmm. Like it is hitting uh, some of, it is hitting some of these, it's naming some of these anxieties and hurts and fears uh, in a way in which, you know, we thought was important, but it turned out was like really quite urgent, actually. Was House of Cards that. a late edition or was that from ground zero? You, House of Cards was in there. House of Cards was in there. I don't know if it has its own chapter. I'm trying to remember. It's mentioned, I don't think it's, it's, it's mentioned, I think, alongside. I think it had a season out. I don't know if it had two seasons. I think, I mean, the first season was probably my favorite, but uh, it, it, it definitely fits. Uh, I actually think we wanted to put... Uh, I think we did Scandal instead of House of Cards for our like dystopian political drama. Uh, one of the reasons was I think it has a slightly larger 
a somewhat trashier show, uh, but it is also very entertaining. Uh, but it also has a bit more, there's this sort of tenor of people recognize the Washington they see more than in Frank Underwood's, where they're like, oh, this couldn't happen. And then that's, that's quite dystopic. Yeah, although ironically, you know, <laughs> it seemed that way. Um, but, uh, but we wanted a political dystopia, and in particular in Scandal's one of these great ones, because again, it doesn't seem apocalyptic. You know, people do die in Scandal, but you know, atomic bombs don't go off and whatever else, right? And it's not the literal rending of the thing. But there is an ending. There's a sense in which the idealism, you know, uh, of the Washington that was, you know, the West Wing is dead. You know, kind of thing. I mean, that's what scandal Jed feels Bartlett's like. Jed not walking through that door. Exactly. Uh, and there's an idealism behind that. There's a whole tradition behind that, right? This idealism of Washington, which is a difficult place in which compromises are made, but moral men go and they work out the business of the nation and they do it in just ways. And, you know, a good man can make a big difference. Scandal just, like, craps all over that, mm -hmm. right? I mean, it mm -hmm. says, oh, no, you know, Jed Bartlett's not showing up. Uh, so in some ways, I actually think... I actually think some of the stuff has become more urgent. We probably would have done more with the political elements, which is ironic for a political scientist to say, um, just because that's become so much more mass, people have become so much more mass aware of that. Uh, I think there will be enough books written on Trump. Yeah, well, I don't, yeah, I don't think we would have wanted to write on that. A Canadian in particular probably shouldn't write on that. But. Are you familiar with HBO's show The Leftovers? Yeah, well, Alyssa does. I mean, she used to do a ton of writing on The Leftovers. It's one of her favorite shows. She got me onto it, too. Uh, that easily could have been in this book. I mean, there was, there, was a, there was a whiteboard, right? And we went through and we tried to find the shows that we thought were the best narrative illustrations of what Taylor was trying to describe in the modern moral order. But there was an almost unlimited, I mean, almost every television show has, is working out some aspect of these tensions nowadays. And I think that's part of what makes them popular, right? They're fingering something that's real. It's not just fiction. Yeah, I think for me, one of the one of the enduring takeaways from your book, which it's not like I didn't think this before, but I think your book is proof of this, is that no matter how far we want to push it away as a broader society or culture, we are a profoundly religious species. Yeah. We are a worship, worshipful species. We are a mythologizing species. We are a believing species, a hoping species, and, and a hurting species. And yeah. I, and it's it's hard to escape from that. And, and you see the profoundly spiritual nature of a lot of these these most popular or most enduring uh, shows of, of the golden age of television. And it's just, it's hard, it's hard to escape. If, if, if you get someone at a table and they're honest, it's hard mm -hmm. to escape that there's some yearning for this discussion. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I was having a Twitter exchange with somebody who'd read the book and they said, oh, you know, one of the things the church needs to do is you know, really needs to speak against the apocalyptic nature of popular culture. And I said, no, 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 we need to, not, not at all. We need to tell them that it, it you know, it is an apocalypse, but that, but we have literal, and by the way, I can't imagine a more important sort of thing, uh, way to think, we have literal good news. We have a gospel, right? And it begins with, do not be afraid, you know, and it ends with, I am making all things new. And there is this beauty in that Christian confession in which Christians can actually sit in the middle of this conversation and say, all this darkness, this difficulty, it is true, it is there, but I have some good news. And many of these pop culture stories, that's, their, that's what they're reaching for. They're reaching for good news. But I think there's the hope there that even in the midst of all these thorny problems of modernity and post-modernity now and the isolated self and all of these things that, that our humanity 
uh, much like Jon Snow, <laughs> can can experience death yeah. and and also see new life. Yeah. Rob Joustra, author of How to Survive the Apocalypse, Zombie Silence, Faith and Politics uh, at the End of the World. Thanks for being with us today. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. And thanks for listening. Uh, we'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, uh, I'm Ryan Huber, and bye. Thank you.